Welcome to our third CIO Roundtable. Joining us at the table this time are Brian Lilly, who won CIO of the Year for Silicon Valley in 2014 while he was in the role for Equinix, and Kamud Kalia, a multiple-time CIO who most recently held the title at Silence. Together with Ian, they discuss having a soundboard of other CIOs to talk to, leveraging your network to get things done internally, work-life balance, and how to be both a good CIO and a good person at the same time, and so much more. The conversation was fun and loose, and we really hope you enjoy listening. And if you'd like to check out our previous CIO roundtables or any other episodes of IT Visionaries, check out the links in our show notes or visit mission.org slash IT Visionaries. This podcast is sponsored by Salesforce. Did you know Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience. Okay, gents, we have a fun episode coming for our listeners. We are going to talk about what it means to be a CIO. I want to talk first about the first 90 days of being a CIO and what goes into that. You've both been CIOs multiple times. You know what comes into that. And I kind of wanted to start off with just a little bit about what, when you're going into a CIO job, what are kind of the things that you're thinking about? Kamudi, you can go first. So I think if it's your first CIO job, it might have come from within. You might get promoted in. Yeah, sure. So I'm going to answer this, not for that scenario. I'm going to answer it for, you're just a newly parachuted in CIO, right? You don't know anything about the company. So in your first 100 days, you've got to figure out how the company works, how it makes money, who's who in terms of decision-making, what the key business operations are, how things work in the company, and then how they make money and what their challenges are. So what are customers having difficulty with, right? You need to sort of just roll in it, right? Just sort of listen, don't make any decisions, don't make any judgments, just take it all in. And then after maybe about four or six weeks, most people's patience runs out. At that point, they feel like they've got to say something or they've got to do something. So at that point, you produce your draft plan. You don't do a real plan. You do a draft plan. Ooh, I like that. And you go socialize it with your peers. And they'll correct you on the things you've missed or you've, you've misinterpreted because you will. You'll goof things up, right? You can't understand the whole business that quick. And then once you've got that, then you've got like a good sort of plan. You can then take to the troops and communicate and say, right, this is what we're going to do. I think that's effectively your job for the first 90 or 100 days. I love that draft plan idea because I think that's one of the classic traps that any leader falls into is making the assumption that they have to have all the answers rather than kind of doing that side by side one sheet. Hey, look over this. What I miss? You know, what, are, what I, am I getting anything wrong here? I love that. What about the coach, Brian? What do you think? So first of all, Kumud hit it pretty much on the head. The uh, there's first of all, there's a book out that I would like to recommend to people called "The First Ninety Days." It's by Michael Watkins. Yep, it's it's a great book. My and, impetus for this question, in fact, I love that book. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a it's a great book, and it and you get it before you get the job because it actually starts if you look at the you know if you if once you read it. It starts before you come in and it helps prep you for the kinds of, of things you want to ask even before you take the role. 
But once you, you know, he, he talks about transition traps and transition principles. And I think the net net is, you know, when I just tie it back to my first CIO role was at Equinix. It's in fact, it's the only CIO role I had when I came in and interviewed, I was, you know, there was one of nine and I was the only non former CIO. I was, in fact, I was the VP of sales operations, mm-hmm. but I had a tech background. And so I, I know that my 90 day plan, you know, the first 30 days was to do what Kamut said. It was to figure out, you know, what made this place tick. And that starts with people. So I, I remember when I wrote my plan, I think in the first 30 days, I had 27 people that I wanted to actually have one-on-ones with hmm. and understand, you know, their priorities, what they were working on. And, and, and to me, it was twofold. It was one to, to understand as, as Kamut said, the, you know, how it operated and what their priorities were. But, but what I think is equally important is relationship building. You can't do anything as a CIO without building bridges. It, you know, I've seen people fail over and over and over again when they, they try and say my way or the highway or, or they don't have those relationships because sometimes, you know, this notion of an emotional bank account, you got to dip in, especially if a project fails or it's late or whatever. And so you start, you know, the ground up is to build relationships in my book. And, and then there's a, there's a whole set of things you got to do. You know, you, you have to understand your boss's top priorities, your peers. I think, I think the one thing that's really hard to navigate is your peer relationships. And so in your first 90 days, understanding your peers and what they need to be successful and sort of being as committed to their success as you are to your own, just really builds a foundation that that you can launch a change initiative or fail and to still succeed. So I think that's that's what I at least do in my first 90 days. I'd just add that I would expect that something you didn't, it wasn't in your plan is going to happen in your first 90 or 100 days. You know, my my first sort of CIO job was like an entry-level CIO job, right? It wasn't a very big business or anything. And then when I got my big sort of scale CIO job, I was maybe two months into it. And this was in New York and 9-11 happened. Huh. And I was, our office was you didn't plan for that. on Wall Street. Right. right. Oh my gosh. And so, I mean, how do you plan for that? Yeah. That's just one of those things that you just don't know is going to come. And so the fact that I had done certain things with the team in that first couple of months, like we'd done an offsite, got to know each other a little bit better, um, meant that there was some relationship you know, asset that you could leverage which had I not done that, had I chosen to do that a few months later, wouldn't have been in place. And so, you know, I think, um, you know, we counted on that a lot over the sort of next sort of 10 days or so when that event happened. There's no 90-day plan. There's no book. There's nothing you can prepare that's going to then tell you how to deal with that kind of event. Uh, so you just deal with it in the moment and then hope it works out. Speaking of relationships, how did you two meet? <laughs> you want the 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 version that is shareable, right? Yeah, yeah. This okay. is the one that that okay. our I just wanted to check that our that our listeners can uh, <laughs> can maybe their kids are in the car. Uh, version. <laughs> exactly. Well, I you know I'll start, and I'm sure Kamut will finish. Dark, uh, rainy night. Yeah, exactly. Some back alley somewhere. Yeah, in some country somewhere. No, there's you know one thing that I I think a piece of of advice, wisdom, or just 
knowledge that maybe people know, maybe they don't, is, you know, again, relationships matter. Mm-hmm. And and when you're, you know, when you're a CIO and you're in the muck, because sometimes the job you're in the muck, it, it's helpful to know others that are sort of sharing that pain with you. And when I first became one in 2008, uh, I joined a CIO group that was uh, in the Valley. And this group, these are still some of my my closest, I would say friends. I mean, I mean, I count them as friends. I count Kamut as a friend. Um, and, and part of it was, I love the format where we just would come in and share like questions for the group. We'd come in and one person would actually share a case and get feedback on the case. Uh, it, and it, But what I discovered really quickly was over time, you really began to depend on, on those relationships for, you know, hey, I'm looking for a DLP solution, whatever. So that's, so that kind of, of, of CIO bond is real. It's real. Yeah. And I met Kamud through that group and, and he's a very smart guy. And when I, you know, he might be doing some things that I hadn't done. In fact, guarantee you he did. And, and I, uh, you know, maybe usually they, Brian got there before. No, me. maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe, but the bottom line is, is, is you throw an, a question out to the group and that group would jump in. And Kamud was always very kind of clear on, Hey, have you thought about this very business oriented versus you know, only technical. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it was through that relationship of, of we're both in the muck, you know, not together per se, but sort of, you know, just in our individual companies that I met him. And then, and then the fact that he is truly a scotch, you know, he's, he's, he's an, yeah, enthusiast is, but I would say, you know, I call him the scotch professor. He's the <laughs> SP. Um, uh, he's taught me about scotch and weaned me off of bourbon. So, uh, so that's how I met. There you go. I've improved his life. He's completely improved. Um, Show value first, you know. You know, I think (laughs) if you if you look at a CIO's role within a company, there's nobody else in the company that gets what the CIO's role is about. Even the CEO doesn't really understand it, Mm -hmm. and it's the only truly across all functions in the company role, right? So other than maybe the CEO, CEO, other than the CEO, right? So. You see all parts of the business, but you see all the minutiae that the CEO never sees. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you have this sort of very unique perspective in the company. And if you talk to any of the other leaders on the team, they don't have that view. And so they're usually looking very myopically at their own silo or business function or part of the business. So, you know, it can be a lonely place because you've got no one else to talk to that understands the trade-offs you're trying to make because there's all sorts of constraints on you there's budget constraints people constraints time constraints and you're trying to figure out like how do i get all this stuff done who do i let down so that i can move forward with this critical you know initiative for the company and so it's natural to reach out to other people like yourself Mm -hmm. to say you get what i'm going through how did you do this and i think that's why the cios are a pretty tight community because there's no one else gets what we do except each other so we're like our own you know support group yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a sound. It's a sounding board. And then when you when you find that, you know, there's this perception. I think sometimes that, and and maybe I think earned, that CIOs are are you know, the chief technology mechanic. 
mm-hmm. right? They're they're you know plumbing, they're um, they're they're lost in the minutia or the weeds. They're not necessarily strategic. And when I met Kamud and and others, you know, Basque and and Dave Smoley, who's now at AstraZeneca, and Mark Settle, and all these guys, when you, when you talk to these folks, you find out that they actually are pretty sharp business guys, who happen to be in the CIO role. And I think, I think that's why they've been successful. That's why they're in that seat. And you know, you you can bounce ideas off of them and off of like Kamud and I have talked many times about you know, CRM and, and, you know, the focus on front office versus back office. I mean, I coined this sort of front office CIO notion, which is how do you get to be a part of the business where you're really engaged in the lines of business and with the customers and, and having those conversations with people like Mood that get it. And, and it's safe. It's also safe because yep. I can say, I really want to do this thing. That's kind of heresy. What do you think? And he's like, you know, I think you should go for it. And here's why. And here's what I did. And that is just so valuable. Or NFW. Like, don't yeah, even think exactly, about it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I've, I, and by the way, I've gotten both of those pieces of advice from this guy. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I think that there's a lot of, I think, CIOs that we talk to that have to pitch risky initiatives or things like that, that need some backup. Like, hey, if I'm going to go to my CEO and say, hey, I think the CTO should roll up under me or, hey, I think that we should spin out, you know, this other function or, hey, I think we, you know, do or don't need a chief digital officer, whatever. I mean, those are all kind of randomly specific around those things, but really anything that they've said, it's like, it really helps to have someone be like, hey, we can't share this publicly, but this is what my pal over here at this company did and why they did it. And they did it a year ago and it's working pretty darn well. Um but that information is not publicized, you know, and it's definitely not the reasoning explained. Have you ever had those type of experiences where you can leverage the network to get stuff oh, done all internally? All the time. Definitely. All the time. Because you can't buy this stuff, right? You can't go to like a Gartner and say, tell me which companies have tried this because it's not public information, so they can't get it. So you reach out to your network and you get the real scoop on this vendor, this situation, this personality right maybe in the value or something so yeah you get pretty unfiltered and then it's like what do you want to do with it i want to talk for a little bit about we'll call it work-life balance but really it's about how to be a good cio and how to be a good person with your family with your friends and all that sort of stuff brian you've been a coach for 17 plus years and a cio award-winning cio might add um What's your secret? What's your playbook to being able to manage both things? Well, it's it's uh, it's an interesting one because it's it's so difficult, but it's I think it just comes down to prioritization. So my um, my personal situation is is I was an athlete. I played multiple sports growing up, and I had a single mom, and and so nobody kind of coming to your game is is a bummer. Yeah, it's a bummer. Like not even to watch you you know, play versus even coaching. And so that stuck with me. And then I thought if you're going to get married and, and, and have kids that, that to me, just for me, I'm not, there's no judgment here. I I just wanted that to be a priority. But at the same time, an equal priority is, is that you want to, you know, you want to succeed. You want to become, you know, ultimately a C-level 
uh, you know, if, if that's what you've set as a goal and I did. And, and so it's this integrated life. There's a book that I, I read and there's, uh, or I read and, and have tried to model my life after it's called true North. And it's by the former CEO of, of Medtronics. It's uh, Bill George. He wrote this book and he talks about an integrated life versus balance. He goes, balance doesn't exist. He talks about it being uh, this, this integration. And so I started to think about this as integrated. And I said, what is the thing that I could sacrifice with the least amount of impact on my team at work, on my kids, on my wife? And the thing I've probably sacrificed the most is sleep. Yeah. Honestly, it's sleep. And 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 I think with technology, the 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 negative about the consumerization of IT and this these, you know, devices and you the fact you're always on and all that stuff is that you are always on and and it can be a detractor. The positive is is I've been able to approve requisitions from the dugout. I've been able to um answer that quick email where it it keeps the ball moving forward or that quick text or whatever. So I think the number one thing is prioritization is you've got to say, this is a priority. And I've had at least one boss and I won't mention who the boss is, but I've had one boss in my life say, you know, their, their kids ended up being collegiate athletes and they never coached them. And yet this boss was so good. He, he came to one of my games where I was coaching and he said, darn it. I wish I would have done that. And so I think it's prioritization. It's probably sacrificing sleep because you're going to be online later, but it's also just communicating to your boss and to, to your peers and everybody that this is a priority and that I promise I will be back online later. Mm-hmm. I promise I will get that done. So this, this notion of the P word, in fact, I talk about this with my kids. I go, they, in, in fact, you could talk to all four. I have four children. All four of them, you could ask them this question and they would know exactly what I mean. They'd say, what's the P word? And they'd go, oh, that means my dad promise. And they go, what does that mean? That means he will be there. It will happen. He will do it. And and he goes, well, what is well, what if it's not a promise? What he'll say is, I'll do my best. So so this, this commitment thing, and I learned this in my very first job out of the Air Force was at Silicon Graphics with Ed McCracken, who was the CEO of Silicon Graphics. I met him at a, at a party and he said, you know, there's these people that last about six months and they just leave SGI. And then there's those that really get it and they start to, to make this because SGI was the darling uh, mm-hmm. at the time, right? And, and what he said to me is he goes, he had a little black book of commitments, and he goes, the number one thing you got to do, Brian, is keep your commitments. And he, and he said, he goes, keep your commitments to your team, to your customers, because I was running uh, site IT. And I just, I never forgot this notion of when you make a commitment, because my nature is to overcommit. That's my nature. Yeah. But what I've been taught is to undercommit and overdeliver. Yeah. And what I've decided to do is say, look, if I say the P word, I promise the, I said, you guys, you take it to the bank. And it's not only been my kids, but now people that work for me know if I say the P word, I'm going to get it done. If I say, I'll do my best, it may not get done. And I, I just think this thing about prioritization, commitment, keeping, and probably sacrificing a little sleep can make it so that, I mean, I did, I coached 17 years. 
I coach soccer in the fall, basketball in the winter, and baseball in the spring. Some cases, nine teams in the course of a year because you'd have the regular season for three kids and then they were all-stars. Then you'd have the all-star season. I mean, it was there were some insanity moments. My wife's a saint. Stay-at-home mom. I give her a ton of credit for you know being the shock absorber to all this. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I I just think it's an important thing to decide. If you want to do this, you can do it. It's hard, but you can do it. I I would only add. I think that there's some perspective that you have. Um, it's easy to get dragged into the weeds on lots of this, different issues in our day job. I think if you have perspective, it gives you clarity. And then you can simplify where the decisions are, what you call prioritization. You know, kids don't understand what you're doing when you're away from home, right? All they know is I see dad and I don't see dad. Mm-hmm. And so for them, it's really simple. Did dad show up or not? Which good dad, bad dad is the one who shows up, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the only real difference. That's how they're going to measure it. So it's like what you said, it's like it's pretty lonely if no one shows up. Right. So I think if you tell your kids are going to show up, you show up. Mm-hmm. Right. Because ultimately they're the most important. Right. That's why you're doing a lot of this stuff. So if someone else has to get let down, right, because you prioritize your kids, then you do that. Other times you don't because there's some other issue has to be dealt with. And you tell your kids, hey, I can't do this. And if you tell them straight, they might not like it, but they'll accept it. The worst is saying, I'll be there and then not show up. That's mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. So I think the clarity is required, the perspective is required, so you can make off all the trade, you know, trade-offs you need. You can't please everyone all the time, right? We all know that. And so I think when you do show up, the kids actually recognize it. Some of it is just like, it's just every day. They just take it for granted. It's like breathing, right, to them. They don't care. Oh, hey, Dad was there. Great. Other times they'll realize you made a big sacrifice to be there, and they get it. They get it. Yeah, I mean, I think like you said at the beginning, Brian, about this idea of like balance, right? It's like the the balance beam. Well, it's like, it's an overly reductive idea um, because number one, a balance beam is only, you know, stationary when there's no tension on either side. And then it's like, it's inherently a fixed pie mindset, right? And like life is not fixed. Um, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, having a growth mindset and things like that. But like, number one, your story's not written until it's written, right? So it's a continuous ledger. Uh, it's like the blockchain that it continues to go and go and go. And, and all of these things are recorded. And I think that, like you said, Kamud, that being able to be present when you're present is the important thing where you get in trouble is when you're, say you're going to be present, you're not. And I think conversely, when you are now with devices, with the rise of technology, I think the other piece of this is, you know, not being present when you should be. And I think that that's where people kind of get in trouble when you're sitting in the, you know, car with your kids and you have your AirPods on and you're listening to a podcast. Uh, Certain circumstances, that's fine. But um, there's a lot more opportunities to be physically there, but not mentally there, which is all too easy to do. And I think it's a it's a bit of an epidemic in society today is that there are too many things to focus your attention on that we've lost the ability to concentrate. Totally. Uh, and so, you know, the sort of rise of ADD, you know, we say it as a joking thing, but it's real, right? I mean, people can't focus on one thing for more than about five minutes, right? Even that sometimes is a long time. 
And so I think there's a sort of back to basics that we need to do as a society, which is how can you focus on something, give it your full attention for the time it needs. It could be 30 minutes, could be an hour, could be four hours, whatever it is. Because then you'll be really productive. You'll just do that one thing and you won't need to revisit it because it'll be done really well. And we learned that as kids, right? Our education hasn't really changed that much in probably 100 years. So we learned all those lessons and then we unlearned them. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think, and I think I, there's, there's I, a little I, bit we could, we could do it going back to basics. I think this, is, this, this topic is such an important topic. There's, I mean, there's so many things that are in my mind on this. The, the, the first one is, when you talked about perspective, you know, I had, and, and prioritization, I had a chief master sergeant in the Air Force, and he's, he's passed on, or he's a senior master sergeant, uh, Charlie Karcher. And Charlie came in, I was Captain Lilly, and I was in charge of this unit, and we were a classified comm squadron that was running ops for, and it was during Desert Storm, and it was crazy time and all that stuff. But I was the officer in charge. I was a commander. And, and the number one thing I had to do was take care of the troops. And you have to write performance reviews. And it's a pain in the butt. And you just, you have to do it. It's like your number one thing. And I was always working <clears throat> late trying to catch up on these things. So he comes in. So Matt, Senior Master Sergeant Karcher comes in. And he said, uh, sir, he shuts the door. He says, sir, <coughs> you know, permission to speak freely. And I said, absolutely, Charlie. What's, what's up? He goes, you're going to effing kill yourself. And he dressed me down. He's like, okay, I'm going to work with you on time management. He goes, number one, what are the things you have to do? You have to do because of your command responsibilities. And he's like, you know, you've got to respond to the colonel. You've got to write performance reviews. I mean, he went through the list. He goes, how much time do you think it would take you to do that? If that's all you did? And I said, 30 hours. He goes, okay, 30 hours a week. He goes, okay, what are the things that you uh, you could really add value to. You really could. You don't have to do, but you could add value to. And da da da. And, I, and we made a list: architecture, briefing, construction for the uh, for the uh, wing commander or whatever. So you're putting that down, and it was another twenty hours. So you're at fifty. And then he goes, and then now, what are the things you like to do? You just like to do it. And it was another twenty. He goes, okay, I'm seeing you spend about seventy hours. You're doing all of these. You can't do it all. You got to do these 30, pick some of the 20 and maybe some of the 20 over here. And that's it. He was so blunt. He hit me in the face. So whoever's out there listening, be direct with your CIO or your VP or your leader about what is it that you, sir or ma'am, need to do? What is it that I need to do? Have that direct conversation because in this thing with your family, you're going to have a very good candid conversation about what's important to you, what you want to prioritize, because you want to have an integrated life, because balanced life, I think, doesn't exist. It's an integrated life. But without having that conversation, I remember that conversation, this was 25 years ago. Yeah. And I remember that conversation. That was an epiphany he, for you. It was an epiphany. Yeah. Came in, I'm like, I really have to think about what are those things that we need to do? And then the other one about this being present, um, I really liked your comment about when you're there, you're there, like mm -hmm. you're present. There's a video online that shows, uh, and, and it was particularly, I, I saw this at a VC event where they brought in this author who was talking about um, about putting your phone to bed, like I'm, I'm not married to my phone kind of a thing. She showed this video and it showed a mother 
with a, a child that was in a somewhat restrained, maybe a two-year-old child in a uh, stroller. And, and what they were doing was, is they were trying to simulate when the mom is looking only at the phone. It, this video is disturbing because th the mom ignored the child, ignored the child. So the child, you know, at first they're like, okay, you know, she's like, okay, honey, how are you doing? Da, da, da. And then she stopped. And it wasn't that she laughed. She just didn't look at the child, didn't pay attention to the child, just was looking around. And the child first starts going, you know, um, hey, mom, you know, da, da, da. And then, hey, 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 mom, mom, you know, and it's, and it's a baby. And all of a sudden this child is like fighting against the restraints, crying, losing it because you're, you're not present. So this integration can't mean... You know, I just was at dinner the other night with my wife and I saw this family and they had two young kids and the kids were living on their phone while eating with the parents. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, guys, tell them to put the freaking phones away and be present. And let's, and so whether that's work or home, I think you can have an integrated life and you can manage it all, but you got to do what you said. You got to focus. You got to, you got to be in the moment. Like you said, got to be present and you and 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 I think you can have it all. You know, one of the things I think we need to do as leaders is live what we just said, Absolutely. right? So that people see us doing that balance, right? Giving time to priorities outside of work. So then we're giving them permission to do the same because completely, they see us doing it completely. And you know, a lot of people, and I remember like the epiphany you had. I remember some of the people that work for me having moments of epiphany like that because I've, I've jolted them into some state of awareness about what they're doing themselves. It's like you had, right, which was I was overcommitting my time, right, so someone had to smack you in the face and say, like, look, this is what's going on. And I remember having this conversation with all my direct reports, and he was sort of alleging or, or you know, just sort of suggesting that it was me that was asking him to do all this stuff. And I just said, Dude, I've never asked you to do those things. So if you're on vacation, I have never called you. And yet you choose to look at your texts and answer phone calls and take meetings while you're on vacation. Yet I never instigated any of them because <laughs> I respect your time away. And so I had this sort of conversation with him and I said, you think you're carrying this burden on my behalf, but you're doing it to yourself. Yeah. You're taking time away from your family but you're somehow making it my fault. Yeah. I was like, yep. dude, look in the mirror. Because yep. unless I specifically asked you to do it, you did it to yourself. Oh, totally. I mean, and so I asked them, did I ask you to do that stuff at weekends? Did I ask you to do that in the evenings, late at night? Did I ask you to take calls when you're in Hawaii with your family? I didn't ask for any of that. You said yes to your calendar when you could have said and should have said no, because that's time away from work and it's time for you and your family. And I was listening to the podcast that Chad did with mm -hmm. um, Eric Topol, where he said he's talking about burnout in the medical field. And he was saying the doctors and nurses that are burnt out make 50% more errors when they're burnt out. That's right. crazy. And you just think, right, there's lives That's at right. stake, right, right, in that field. Now, we might not have the same stakes, but the same things are going to happen. You're still going to make errors. You're not going to make your best judgment when you're overworked and tired. And so people need time away from work, where they get re-energized, whether it's vacation, total time away, well, just time with your family can be re-energizing too. And so 
if you don't have balanced employees, you're not doing your company a, a, you know the right the right sort of service. So I think as leaders, we've got to foster that within our teams, and then they've got to do it within their organizations. Because I've always looked at myself as not necessarily a leader of a team or leader of an organization. I see myself as a leader of leaders. And so I've got to inspire them to do the right things for their teams, not me just coaching them. I've got to do it so that they can do it and pass it on. By the way, this is this is a particularly critical skill and capability that CIOs need and IT leaders because IT people in general are service oriented. They're in a service function. They don't want to be viewed as can't do. They want to be viewed as can do. And so when you put all that together, the tendency is to say yes, all the time, anytime. So this gentleman that Kamud was talking about, who's in Hawaii on vacation, willing to take that call, it's because they're service oriented. They don't want to be shown mm -hmm. as in the way. So this skill that says, look, you, you, you have to figure out and we'll do it together. And I think this behavior modeling is spot on. How to say no and still feel that you're service oriented, still feel that you're responsive and have the business still feel that about you. It's a real skill to be able to do that because I, I can't agree more that I've seen burnout in IT. Well, it's because of your priorities. And I go, okay, let's sit down and actually go through your list of priorities. And I said, wow, you've got 52 things on your list. Honestly, I care about 10. 10 is what I care about. The other 42 somehow got on your plate, either by your boss, if they're not a direct, or by the business or whatever. These are the 10 that have to get done. It's a really, again, this is all about candid conversation and saying, look, and it, and it is passing on a little bit of wisdom, saying, I, I get it. I was in your seat. I, but you have to role model that. Yeah, there's a, uh, there's a great story, and I, we got to verify this uh, afterwards, um, but where it was in the middle of World War II and FDR and Churchill went on like, it was either sailing or a fishing trip or something Any story like that has FDR and Churchill has got to be great. It's great. Yeah, it's great. Right, right, right. It's right. like it's our American and British podcast uh, yes. extravaganza. Um, but, uh, but yeah, essentially they, it was like in the middle of World War II and, um, and they basically went on, I, I think it was like a four-day fishing trip or something like this. Um, you know, because you've got you've got nothing else to do but go fishing in the middle of right? World War Two, right? right? And so, and it's this kind of idea that uh, if they can do that in the most stressful time ever, it's like hey, you know you can you can take your your couple weeks off of vacation. And the reason why is because like you need clarity. Like there's a reason why like all these meditation apps, all these things that are happening right now are happening. It's because yeah, did you need a meditation app? You know back 30 years ago it's like no because the world was not nearly as chaotic as it was like it, was it as chaotic yes was there as the massive amounts of information at your fingertips every second of every day no and so therefore like there wasn't a forceful need to unplug because you didn't need to do that but back then for churchill and for uh fdr they did have all of that information at their fingertips all the time because they're presidents and and they needed a forceful way to remove, to think about things, to talk or whatever it is. And I think it's a, it's a super important reminder that that clarity is necessary to achieve, but it's also necessary 
to share that with your team? Because I think what you were talking about, Kamut, earlier with with your direct report that was kind of couldn't figure out how to make their vacation happen in the right way. You need to be really thoughtful about how you position that with your team and say, hey, everyone, I'm turning my video on for this call because like we all need to have video and I need to have video on. It's like, hey, I'm going on vacation. If you need to get a hold of me, like here's the five steps that you need to go through before you get a hold of me. Like Number one, did you talk to the, this person? Did you talk to this person? Did you talk to this person? And then if it's a, you know, if it's dire straits, like give me a call, but like, this is my time for my family. And if you're prescriptive with those things, it sets that, you know, up. See, so I used that, to be even more black and white over that. It was like, I am not reachable. Yeah, there you go. I have full confidence in my team that they can deal with anything that comes up. There you go. And if it's something that they're not going to be able to deal with, I'll read about it in the newspapers and I'll be back, <laughs> right? So yeah. it's like, I have full confidence in my team. They will take care of it. And I tell the CEO, tell the rest of the team that. It's like, they got this. That's why we hired you, right? So that you can make those decisions. Right. And build that team. I I, I think it's 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 a hard topic because... You, you know, you've been conditioned that activity is, is success versus mm. outcomes. And so, you know, I've got to look busy. I got to feel busy. I got to be in the office. I got to do all these things as opposed to, you know, delivering against outcomes that maybe you can, you know, you don't need to have all those things. You can do that in a, in a different way. And I think, I think what Kamuda is talking about is just spot on about, setting expectations and and teaching that it's okay and then that percolates through the organization uh man this is an important one this is an important topic for you know a an integrated life because you know you i think the best employees and the future leaders are those that have a personal life that have this professional life that develop their spiritual side that that you know really feed their intellectual curiosity. You know, there's, there's a lot more to a person than just, can they write SQL or, yeah. or can they code or, you know, can they do CRM business analysis? Uh, you know, one, one story is, is we, we had a, a guy in the, in the team, a single guy, his family, his passion was cricket. And he built a cricket team at Equinix that won the league, premier league in the Silicon Valley. Teams like Google and Netflix and teams that had much more to draw from. And he built it from scratch and he, and he built it in the right way. He spent his time doing that. And, and, you know, and this same guy was studying for an advanced degree and he was delivering on a couple of our largest financial projects. And I, I just think, you know, he, now he doesn't have a family yet, but I just think that there's a lot more to this guy than just somebody writing code. And I, I don't know, those are the people that I want in the team, you know, and a total team player. He's like recruiting people from like the Indian national team. Exactly, he's sitting there. he's exactly. like, man, I really think this person would be a great, he's, uh, he's a coder and he can hit the crap admin. out of the yeah. ball. Right. You know, I exactly. think, I think all of our organizations are full of people like that. Yeah. We just haven't unlocked what's within them to let them be that person. And some of them don't need that much unlocking. Some of them can do it themselves. They don't need as much help. But others, they're getting in their own way so much, you need to help them out and let them realize their potential. We talk all the time on the show about like citizen development and like low code tools and all sort of stuff. I, I think that, and like hackathons and all this, I mean, I think 
for me personally, I've been, you know, obviously uh, both of us have been, I was in the big green machine, but um, Brian, you were in the big blue machine. You know, being in places- All these military metaphors getting lost Navy. on me. Yeah, exactly. Army, green, Air Force, blue. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, when you're in a company, especially a big company, and you feel like you're- your innovation, your ideas, all that sort of stuff doesn't have an opportunity to reach anyone. We we talk about on the show the idea that um, Eric Ries, who wrote Lean Startup, says that like if you were to like do like an innovation score of a company, that it would be the speed that an idea could get from anyone in the organization all the way to the CEO. And I always thought that was a really interesting way of looking at things. But I think that like hackathons and those sort of things, citizen involvement, any things where you can engage your employees to do something outside of their freaking day jobs, to give them 24 hours or 48 hours or time to make teams with each other is just so empowering. And like, if you don't have a release for those things ever, you just, that little bit kind of can go a long way. Yeah, it's 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 hard for big companies to innovate because they optimize so much around what made them successful. Mm -hmm. And so they become really good at doing a few things. And so when it comes time to pivot into something different, they don't have, they don't have those muscles. And so they tend to then acquire and sort of graft on, right? What they need to, to innovate and get into new spaces. And I think they lose something because where they started is very different to where they ended up. Right, and they were they like at some point all companies were some scrappy startup, mm -hmm. right? And then when they become big and successful, they lose their mojo, right? All the stuff that got them going in the early days, right? That grit and that you know taking risks and trying new things, and they lose it. Yeah, they they sort of institutionalize it out so that you know there's no risk, there's no downside, right? Yeah. There's just like predictability. There's a machine. The machine then rejects anything that interferes with efficient running of the machine, right? So even if you have innovators, you know, in your midst, you kind of squelch them. You say like, no, 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 you're interfering with this smooth running of this machine. And so it's like an irritant now. That's why it's really difficult for big companies to innovate. You know, the, uh, the organizational DNA has evolved to a point where there's like total rejection of anything not what we already are. That's something I think companies are learning with now because the disruption that's coming at them, the business cycles are being compressed. The life of companies in like the Fortune 500 is shrinking. Mm -hmm. So companies are having to go back to their sort of scrappy roots, which I think is a good thing uh, because I think companies optimized and over it, you know, got into this efficient sort of mindset. They got lazy in that mm -hmm. process. And I think uh, as we globalize, as we see a lot of global competition, as you see people around the world willing to do the exact same job for one-tenth of the pay, right? All of these pressures coming on, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to re-energize, I hope, a lot of American industry that's just got fat and lazy. It, again, an interesting conversation because, so we started the conversation around, you know, how do you, how do you find balance or integration in your life? And, and then that creates actually a more, I don't know, fully engaged, switched on, et cetera, employee, which then can drive to more innovative and creative. And again, but you as the leader have to create the mechanisms to do that. I also think it, that sort of leads into this whole diversity and 
making sure that you have a diverse culture to drive innovation. So there's there's two comments that I would want to make on that. The the first one is, you know, what Kamud's saying about how do you how do you put into place the structures or the processes or the or just the mechanisms to to sort of unleash the creative genius. You know, there's a a Stanford Business School case study that I I studied that's called it's called Right Solutions, R I T E Solutions, mm-hmm. and it's back in the mid 2000s, 2004, 2006. But it's called Unleashing the Quiet Genius of Our Employees. And what this company did, which I thought was so good, they actually invented a uh, they they felt that many of their ideas, as Kamud was saying, that that could be coming from the employees weren't making its way through the system. And so they actually invented a stock market called mutual fund. And in the stock market of ideas, they had, you know, there's NASDAQ, they had SPASDAQ, which was ideas that were to save money. They had uh, I forget what the Dow Jones, Bow Jones or Bow, you know, Dow Bones or something that was ideas to drive revenue. And so these became, and, and what you needed was a, what they called it a, um, as opposed to a prospectus, it was an expectus and it was one page and you needed a guru within the company, not management, but somebody that would be that sort of sponsor and partner. They unearthed hundreds of ideas. And then they gave every employee in the company $10,000 to invest against ideas. And what it did was two things. One is that it it truly unleashed the creative genius. They said some of their best ideas came from the receptionists and, and were voted on via money by the employees. And you didn't necessarily mm. know who the sponsor of the idea was. It also helped you kill bad ideas or ideas that seemed to linger and just got no traction from the entire company. Very, very successful. They ended up licensing the software and selling it. Um, <laughs> That's crazy. So this, this notion- all goods idea. I mean, the idea ended up making money too. The idea <laughs> ended up making money. And, and I think this, this, this notion of, of creating mechanisms or a, and, and having a diverse base from which to pull those ideas is critical. There's been some really great work done by Boston Consulting Group, which proves clearly that diversity drives innovation. It, it. I mean, if you haven't seen this this oh, work, yeah. yeah, it's just it's phenomenal. So, if if you can unleash a diverse workforce and give them the mechanisms to do that. And give them the time and the freedom, as as Kamud was saying earlier, give them the the freedom to be able to do that. They still have to get their job done. So this isn't like all of a sudden accountability is gone. But creating this place where that happens, and uh, I've written about psychological safety, where where you actually can take those risks, magic happens. And you end up not only with a better IT organization, all of a sudden you end up with products. And that's that to me is when you've become a front office CIO or a front office IT organization where you're actually not only taking care of business, you're driving business. All right. I feel like that's a great, great stopping point um, for this CIO roundtable. I think we're going to have to do this again. Jens, thanks so much for coming on. This has been awesome. And uh, I have a feeling there's going to be one in our, in our very near future for another CIO roundtable. 
Thank right. you. Thank, Thank you, you very much for the in- invitation and uh, and keep doing the great work at the mission. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Keep the faith. Thanks again to our friends at Salesforce. Did you know Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience.